I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Elena. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I'm speaking with Carol Hunter from Ireland, who is one of the founders of one of the campaigns for the yes vote for the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. We all know it as the fight for choice in Ireland. And as I understand from Carol, she's an accidental activist. Welcome, Carol. It's wonderful to have you with me today. Hello there. Hello. So my first question is, why did you decide to form a group that focused on grandparents? And I have to say, when I looked online at the pictures of the people congregated around coffee tables of grandparents of your group, Grandparents for Repeal, uh, they were overwhelmingly women. Why was it important to you to bring grandparents together? It really was accidental. Yeah, last September, October, it became obvious that we were going to have a referendum at some point about the Eighth Amendment. And so my local area group, who already existed in a very loose fashion, there were about three people in it, they decided to have an open meeting for people who were interested in getting involved. I went along to that. And during the course of it, somebody mentioned a group called Parents for Choice. And I said, well, in that case, there really ought to be one called Grannies for Choice, because that's what I am. And suddenly people started saying, what a great idea. Do that. So I took a deep breath. I thought about it more and I thought, I don't want it just to be grannies. I want it to be grandparents because I do believe that it's so easy on issues like this to overlook men. And they are part of this, that I have to include them. And I became grandparents for repeal. I then had to think, okay, now I exist as a sort of idea. How do I spread that? So in this day of social media, I thought I'll set up a Facebook page. I'll set up a Twitter account. I will put myself out there and just see what happens. It seems to have taken off quite quickly. It took off very quickly on Twitter. I think within two days, I had 600 followers. And the Facebook page, of course, was slower. But I was more invested in the Facebook page because I had a very clear editorial view on what should and should not go on that. So, I mean, I completely run that by, I really completely run the whole thing by myself. But that has built up momentum, especially the Facebook page, so that I have a lot of followers now of all ages. So that's been wonderful. They're very much out there throughout the whole of Ireland, in every little place, rural, urban, whatever. I was saying once we were chatting just before we started the interview that I've been listening to the radio in Canada and there's been an awful lot of coverage. And I think all of the coverage that I've heard has been young women of Irish descent who flew home, a lot of them, to vote. 
And when I saw your group, it made perfect sense to me instantly that there would be a group of women in particular who, for years and years, had lived in the context of a widespread public acceptance that it was perfectly appropriate for there to be a constitutional amendment that made it impossible for women to get an abortion in Ireland. Uh, It made sense to me that having lived through it, and undoubtedly having known women who had suffered under it or had daughters or granddaughters who were struggling with it, that you would come together. But I wonder if you can share with us what was the impetus? And when you came together with other grandparents, was that what was being brought to the fore, the experiences that women had had? Absolutely. It might not have been a a direct personal experience of, for example, having a termination, but we have families, we have daughters, we have grandchildren, and we want them to feel loved and supported by us. That's our job. It's not to be judgmental about anything. It's to help them. And all of us feel really strongly about being there for our families. But also, we are a generation that has grown up feeling the, the full brunt of misogyny that has been so evident in Ireland for so many years, right through from when the Constitution was put together in the late 30s. And even before that, in 1935, I think contraception was banned. And the fathers of the Constitution, primarily Eamon de Valera, seemed to have have a real idea of trying to make Ireland this land removed from the cut and thrust of European politics. He very much disliked, I think, modern life at that point and and really wanted Ireland to remain in aspect. So the constitution has stuff in it, like a woman's role is to have children and look after the home. Uh, Not very many constitutions (laughs) (laughs) have that in them. And we still have that in our constitution. From then, right away through to the 70s, there was a marriage ban for um, women who were working in the public sector. They had to give up work as soon as they got married. People, as you know, had huge families here, whether they wanted them or not, whether they could afford it or not. And a woman's role was very, very restricted. So growing up with with that as a background informs an awful lot of women. And only gradually has it sort of dawned on people. This is not how it should be because that's not real life at all. Real life is, is complicated. Then after that, we had all the scandals of the church becoming apparent, the, the abuse scandals, the, for example, the Tuam babies. Um, a woman over in a town called Tuam in Galway who was determined that she was going to find out about, this was in, in those mother and baby homes like the, the Magdalene laundries and things like that where women were shunted and vilified for being pregnant outside marriage. And the home had unusually high number of infant mortality rate. And they searched the grounds of the old convent and they found hundreds of bodies of infants which had been put into an old septic tank. Wow. And they didn't necessarily have death certificates. They weren't killed, but they weren't looked after. So there was a really high morbidity rate. And they were posed of by the nuns in that way. It's not that long since, since this was discovered. And, and at the moment, we're dealing with an adoption scandal, which has just broken 
which is that they have discovered that in the 50s and 60s, the church was, nuns predominantly, were taking babies and giving them to um, up for adoption, but they didn't they didn't register them under their original mother's name. The birth cert is recorded as having the adoptive parents as the birth parents. So they reckon that there are a fair few people out there who have grown up and now in their 50s or 60s who are not who they think they are. Wow. All of this such a legacy from the inability for women to not carry on unwanted pregnancies or to be vilified for becoming pregnant in circumstances that aren't deemed appropriate or traditional. Precisely. And the secrecy that surrounded everything, the denial, the hypocrisy. And then we had more and more cases of women suffering because of the Eighth Amendment. Um, We had deaths which were directly attributable to the Eighth Amendment. Um, The Eighth Amendment isn't just about abortion. That's the sort of face of it, if you will. But the Eighth Amendment is about women's human rights. And we older women are also focused on the fact that because the Eighth Amendment gives equal right to the unborn and to the mother, there's a tendency to think of that as meaning that the unborn should have quite a lot of rights. But in fact, it doesn't. The unborn only has the right to survive pregnancy. Rights don't accrue until after birth and citizenship and things like that. So the baby has the right to survive, which means the mother who has equal rights, her only right is the right to survive pregnancy. She has no other human rights. They are suspended for the duration of her pregnancy. So she has no right to liberty, freedom from torture, consent, all of those things she's stripped of. She becomes literally an incubator. And that is just awful, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's extreme. And so the repeal of the Eighth Amendment really gives rise to a a new dawn of understanding around the autonomy and the sexual autonomy and the rights of women generally, not just the right to choose. Precisely. And in there, there is consent because during pregnancy, especially during labor and birth, the woman's voice is silent because the rights of that baby have to be considered. So, for example, we've had cases where women have not wanted to have um, a cesarean section, not sort of dangerously don't want to, but have said, can we delay this for three days so my husband husband could be here or something like that? And have actually been taken to the high court to be forced to have a C-section when the doctors say she should have it rather than when she would want it. And have threatened them with taking their babies away. Not just the the, um, baby she's about to have, but also existing children. Because she must be an unfit mother because she's not agreeing to have a a C-section. Wow, it's a complete transgression of a woman's right over her own body and decisions that are related to it. Yes. Also, there are things like if you're having quite a lot of procedures here as a woman in childbearing years, one of the first things they do to you is give you a pregnancy test because if the treatment that you are going to have might harm the baby in any way, you can't have that treatment, including chemo. Good Lord. I don't think that many of us realized the extent of the control over women or the taking away of their own decisions. And of of course, no one that I've ever met who believes in choice uh, is pro-abortion. But in this case, 
it really is so much deeper than that. It's about how the state and the public at large view women within the population. And and so invasive that because the unborn having equal status to the mother is a separate entity from the mother and is represented by the state. So as a woman, you're carrying around the state within you. So doctors, I mean, people die because the doctors were so terrified of doing something that would run a risk to the health of the baby. They weren't allowed to do things which risked either the life or health of the baby, but only the life of the mother. So they would let any deterioration in the mother's condition get very bad until they were convinced that she might die. And then they would do something. Then they could perhaps terminate her pregnancy. But sometimes they just left it too late. It makes sense to me as you're describing the breadth and the depth of what the Eighth Amendment really meant for women, how that extends out to how women are seen and how their rights are seen. It makes sense then that you had former ministers who are now grandmothers in your group and that you had retired judges because you had women who had actually achieved a certain level of power and influence who at the same time were themselves subject to this denial of fundamental rights or being seen as rights bearers. There's a bizarre juxtaposition of women, some women, being able to move into the political sphere or move into the legal sphere where they themselves are part of the state body, but are fundamentally, at the end of it all, uh, women to whom all of those laws apply. Precisely. And I think they're absolutely great. Like um, Judge Catherine McGuinness, they achieved so much against the, the background that they did at the time. And they just were super smart against against men. You know, they had to be to drive it forward. But Ireland has always also been this strange place where we have had women who have broken through. I think for those women who don't buy into the patriarchy, who see it for what it is, there have been some really focused women, you know, the, the Mary Robinsons of this world and Mary McAleese, uh, our last president, um, who is taking on canon law in the Catholic Church. So perhaps because it's been quite difficult for women here, it has enabled standout women to rise up and be something as well. All of us, no matter what we've done and what we've achieved in life, this affects all of us, having had babies ourselves and especially as I say, for our families, how could we possibly want this happening to them? We, we have to do what we can as grandparents to free our women, free our daughters, free our grandchildren. That makes complete sense. And I think the, the extent of the denial of women's rights beyond just preventing abortion would not necessarily sit well, even with those who struggle deeply with the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. That doesn't necessarily mean that they would find all of the implications of the Eighth Amendment palatable. So there are very much people that you wouldn't expect would make it obvious they were going to vote yes. And of course, nobody really wants to talk about abortion. It's one of those words where you have to open your mouth and hope it will come out sort of words. Putting it out there is still quite challenging for most people. And so it's been surprising how many people did say that personally they would never do this, but it wasn't about them. It was about not being judgmental and supporting women's choice. So, yeah, you can have people who are completely anti-abortion. And most of us, as you said, we're not pro-abortion and we're not baby killers, which I have thrown at me so consistently. And how disgusting to be a grandparent who wants to kill her own grandchildren, which luckily just rolls off me because it's just 
so completely ridiculous. <laughs> right. I remember when I was young, my mother, who was a feminist journalist, was writing a lot about choice. And I remember an incident when I was quite young, I think I was about nine years old or so, when uh, someone called our house and my little sister, who was four, picked up the phone and just stood there with her eyes opening wider and wider, looking more and more horrified. And my mother suddenly, after a couple of minutes, leapt across the room and grabbed the phone from my sister and put it to her ear. And there was somebody on the other end saying, you know, your mother's a baby killer and she wants to run over babies in the, with her car. And, she, mm. and my poor sister was completely traumatized by it. But I remember watching my mother through this. And even as a young girl, recognizing that there was a great personal cost to the very public stand that she was taking as a journalist. And I knew how strong she must be. I recognized it even as a young girl, that she must be so strong personally to withstand so much anger directed at her around the issue. And I wonder, Carol, what gave you the fortitude? Because you did put yourself out there in, in a moment in your country where feelings were running high and hot. What brought you to this moment of willingness to put yourself forward? I've had things happen to me in my life. And the whole process of having to cope with things that suddenly come from left field does make you stronger. I'm not enormously self-conscious. The message is, is more important than I am. Standing and talking to a group of people, I don't get nervous about that because I want to listen to them and I want to get something across from me to them. And, and it's not about me. Speaking directly has always been important to me. The truth has always been important to me. Lack of hypocrisy has always been important to me. And that matters for me. That matters. And I'm quite a cheerful person. And if, if I meet somebody who disagrees with me, that's their choice. If I'm pro-choice, I have to accept the fact their choice isn't my choice. I can't denigrate them for not choosing the same path that I choose. So why not be nice to them? And, right. and it's much more difficult for people to be nasty to a grandmother who's smiling at them. <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> I didn't want it to be a polemic I, or anything like that. I didn't even want it to be particularly an opinion base. In some ways, it, obviously, my opinion was that I was pro-repeal. I wanted it to be a resource. I wanted it to be factual. I wanted it to be informative. And I wanted it to be encouraging for people scattered around who might not know anybody who dared say that they were pro-repeal. I did go out into the country and, and talk to some people, but I couldn't be here, there and everywhere apart from anything else. My 94-year-old mother lives with me and I care for her. So I don't have as much freedom to move around as I might wish for under these circumstances. So people were left very much finding other grandparents in their local areas that they could work with and that I just said, to them what's going to win this a conversation just conversation upon conversation and here is some fact and this is how you can talk to people now just go and talk and talk and listen and that in the end is what will win this campaign and was your 94 year old mother a part of the group as well uh yes on my facebook page she um made the video of why she is with pro repeal oh that's marvelous i missed so, it i must go back and watch it Oh, one of the great joys of this for me has been meeting people that I'd vaguely heard of. Um, there was one man called Frank Crummy who is actually on the banner of the Grandparents for Appeal page. 
he pushed for recognition for domestic violence, women's refuges, birth control. From the late 60s onward, he was one man on a mission. I think he said he started off, he was a bus driver or something like that. But he just really felt he had to do something to support women. Women would write to him wanting condoms and they had a sort of little domestic production line. He would go to the north and come back with suitcases of condoms, which he would count out. Um, his wife would dress the envelopes. One of the children would put something in somewhere else <laughs> and they'd send off <laughs> around the country. And he, um, he had special branch men um, attached to him everywhere he went, apparently, he had not done anything campaigny for a long while. And actually, his granddaughter, who lives in London, in this London Irish repeal group, got in touch with me about him. And I said, but we would love him to come to a meeting. And and he came along. And it was lovely, apart from the fact that Catherine McGuinness and Liz McManus and Gemma Hussey, the other politicians there, just all shouted, Frank, we haven't seen you for 30 years. I know that right up until the vote, so many of you were unsure how it was going to go. Oh, yeah. uh, and, I, and I watched, I found it very moving. There were YouTube videos and videos on Facebook of thousands of people gathered waiting to hear the result of the vote and how they responded uh, was so moving. And I wonder, where were you when you heard the result and how did your group respond in that moment knowing that you had won? The exit polls, which happened on the Friday night after the actual vote, were announced. I was just sitting at home by myself, as were quite a lot of other people. We were all WhatsApping each other, and there was this sort of stunned silence across WhatsApp, and people then started saying, did they really say that? Did they really say 67% yes? And it was at that point, that was the first time when I dared actually think. It had been fairly, a couple of days before, we had felt, I, I was really quite sort of ner quite nervous up until then. But then people were coming up to us everywhere and saying, I'm with you and great and beating their horns. And the atmosphere became very supportive altogether. So we dared begin to hope. Then, as I say, sitting at home myself, I did actually um, have an invitation to, to go where the campaign leaders and things were. I've done quite a, a lot at that level, you know, at national level. But I actually wanted to stay with my, my local group here. And so I went on the Saturday to our local counting station for the, for the whole um, constituency, which is quite big. And I helped with the tallying on that. I was doing addition, loads and loads and loads of addition <laughs> to see where we were. And all the tally sheets we were getting in and everything was showing that that was supporting what we'd heard the night before. And it was just, it was just really great. People cried. <laughs> Obviously, we cried. And I was quite overcome because people kept saying to me, what a difference the, the Facebook page had made. It, it seems to have made a huge difference to people. And my my friends, for example, daughters who are in their early 30s um, in England have been following it and commenting on it. And even and, and the amount of just love that came back from people was quite unexpected. We feel that 
that connection around the country between ourselves, right. a real network of like-minded older men and women. It's a very powerful feeling. It must be. And the feeling of elation and relief, excitement was, was palpable even across the ocean. And I wonder if you could share with us how people are feeling now and what comes next. Hmm. Well, what comes next for me, apart from the fact that people are saying to me, okay, where next? And I'm wondering about starting to tackle separation of church and state, which is a biggie here. In a real, in a real sense, abortion is still illegal in Northern Ireland, and they're having a march on June the 10th, so I'm going to go up there in support of their struggle. So there's, there's work to do. And then the most basic one of all for me is, is, tackling misogyny and trying to shine a light on it just shine a light on it because one of the things that really depressed me baffled me totally about the campaign was the degree of misogyny shown by women against women without their realizing that it, they are misogynistic lots and lots of young women who um, supported the no campaign and and it's difficult to avoid the fact that this is misogyny because essentially it wasn't about abortion Ireland accepted abortion in 1992 when it voted to allow people to go abroad to have abortions. It's about women and sex and power. And that so many women have bought into that is depressing. So we're not the only culture like that. Obviously, we're not the only country that has that problem. Sure. But it suggests that there's still a lot of work to do. Yes, lights to be shone. You're not marching in the streets necessarily about this. Um, some of these things are a bit too subtle for that, and they involve too much of cultural change over time. But the only way you can achieve it is by never letting up on revealing it, I right. think. Always, as I say, shining a light into those dark corners. And when I think about the generational ripple effects that this will have, particularly for the granddaughters in all of your lives, but also for the grandsons, because it changes the culture profoundly. Mm. But for the granddaughters in your lives, they will grow up in a completely different world than the rest of you grew up in. Did those of you in the group have that experience of sort of an intergenerational connection as well? There was a great connection. And younger people, younger women were thrilled that older people were behind this and were driving something on that we were taking up arms for them and that you know old age isn't necessarily being put out to pasture <laughs> right. uh, and one young woman wrote me a long bit about that she decided to adopt us as grandparents because all her relatives elderly relatives were, were going to vote no and she felt so let down by that she decided that she was going to adopt us instead <laughs> and how much she appreciated seeing that yes there are older people out there who are part of this world who take on this world as we know it and want it to be a better place and and say the we women who had lived through all the um the difficulties that the constitution and the eighth amendment and everything had thrown at us and still managed not to give up and i hope it's an example that people do see change is possible i think this is the, the greatest thing with all those young people voting that they have voted and they have made a change all of it feels tremendously hopeful and it's it's quite wonderful to hear it from your perspective carol and from the perspective of the group and to have some insight into to how all of this change and all of this hope for a more egalitarian future came to pass i i can't 
can't thank you enough for taking the time to share it with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And um, Ireland, we might not be a big country and we might not be a powerful country, but we can be a beacon in the world. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you. Thank you, Ilana. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.